are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Hi, welcome to Screener Squad. I'm new to this. I am Caitlin Blaylock. I am a citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and we are starting off this episode with a land acknowledgement as this is Native American History Month and this is a Cree film directed by a Cree female director. Two of the three of us are here in Texas and we want to recognize that the Alabama Cushada, the Tigua, the Isleta del Sur Pueblo, and the Kikaboo are federally recognized nations in the borders of Texas. There's the state recognized Lipan Apache and the dispossessed Caddo Comanche Antonqua, which were forcibly removed to Oklahoma. Yes. Thank you, Kat. Welcome, everyone. I am Mindy, and with me is Lowane. Hey, how's it going? Yes, this is a little different than the ones that I usually open. Usually it's a cute little skit or a song, but instead I felt that we are reviewing Night Raiders, which, as Kat said, is directed and written by Dennis Goulet, who is a Cree native, with a story that is very much about the native experience, despite it being post-apocalyptic. So I felt it important to acknowledge the native people of the land that we live in. So thank you for that, Kat. No problem. Because of all the reasons that I mentioned, that is why I asked Kat to be a part of this review. So Hi, Kat. Thank you for being here. We love you. Thank you for having me. This was an excellent experience. I'm so glad. Yes, in case it wasn't mentioned, Kat is a Cherokee native and a very proud one at that. Oh, yes. So if either of you want to get into the synopsis of this film, like I said, it is post-apocalyptic, but obviously there's a lot more to it than that. So it is futuristic. It's 2043. The world has changed. Canada and the United States no longer exist as federal governments as we know them. It's one united government. Apparently there was a big war that had happened that caused a, a bunch of the disruption. And then we come to this mother-daughter duo alone in what they call the bush, which is northern Canada Cree territory, historically, ancestrally, and modernly. So the mother is hiding her child, and while they're foraging and hunting, Wasis, the daughter, is injured in a bear trap. They are scouted by a drone, and they are forced to flee their home, and they make for the abandoned city. And there, Wasis, her injury gets infected. The mother cannot take her to a hospital because Wasis will be taken. She's a child. All children are forced to go to the academy. And ultimately, her mother makes the decision if the infection is going to get healed, if Wasis is going to get medical attention, she has to go to the academy. There's no other option. And that 
is a heartbreaking, traumatic, like I had to stop and breathe at that moment just because I have so much like personal and familial history with those situations. The film sort of progresses. The mother finds her people again and enlists their help to get her daughter out. Yes, what they have been doing is that she finds essentially a Cree cell in the woods. They have been getting kids out of the academy that have been taken because they know that it's not, oh, they're just going to get better and they're going to get skills and they're going to be better. No, they know that something's up. And ultimately, it is about this cell of Cree fighting back against the Jingos, which is what the essentially overlords are called, and essentially regaining their people and regaining their place in the world around them that is continually trying to be taken away. So how did you feel, Kat and Luane? <laughs> I felt every emotion you can think of while watching this film. It was like processing my grief and some of my intergenerational trauma that I've been digging into with my family history and some of my cultural history. I have some facts here about residential schools in Canada and the United States. Yes, because the thing with the academy is that it is very much an allegory to the residential schools, which have been in the news recently, particularly in Canada. This is a Canadian film because of all the bodies of children that they have found. 6,042 at last official count that I saw. Jeez. And the whole purpose of these schools was not only to rip children away from their families, but to destroy their cultures as well. It's like, if we don't destroy them by killing them, we will destroy them by removing them from their culture. That would, that is like written down the intention of these schools. And they existed from like the beginning of the 1900s to like the 90s. <laughs> oh, even further than that? Today. They're still going on? They're still going on. There are 183 operational day schools today in the United States. 53 of them are run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs under the Department of the Interior. 130 of them are under tribal jurisdiction. And 15 boarding schools are in operation. In another chapter in Whitey being little bitches to people... But yes, so this film is very much an allegory to a lot of a native experience. And even non-natives like me can be like, that's right, we be bitches, won't we? Now, there is hope for the first time in the founding of the United States of America. A Native American is the secretary of the Department of the Interior. Which seems like a logical place. She has started a coalition digging into these records. She wants to know exactly how many schools were in operation, who was operating them, how many children died, where they are buried. That work has started last year. I attended one of those 130 day schools still in operation today under tribal jurisdiction. They actually built the boarding school in my town on my reservation. And I had several family members attend my great grandmother my great aunt Sally, some of my grandfather's older siblings. And my grandmother made the decision not to teach her children their language, to protect them from being taken to the school. My mother was born in the 60s. With all of that history and baggage, how did you think this sort of portrayal of obviously an allegory of these schools? Because there were scenes of like the brainwashing and scenes where the the branding and taking her in and the sleep deprivation and the light and the 
starvation and the brainwashing and the what got me was the singling out. Mm-hmm. The headmistress singled Wasis out and said, your people are stupid. No one has gotten that far. You're special. That is where the brainwashing started with mm-hmm. her specifically. And then you see that later on with one of the other characters, the mom's friend. She ends up meeting with her son who was raised in the system. And he sees her and it's like, you're freeloaders. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that's what happens when you're not killed in the system, but you are stripped away of your past. The scene that was most emotional for me was the rifle scene. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're all out in the yard and they're being tested on how quickly they can put together a rifle. Very clearly military training. And the girl who is at the top of the class is clearly from India or of Indian descent that way. And Wasis is stripped of her name. They give her the name of Elizabeth and they call her up and she breaks the Academy's record. And Victoria stands up and accuses her of cheating and calls her a savage. That was the part that caught me. You can see in Wasis's face, I'll show you a fucking savage. Yep. And she goes to town on this poor girl, just beating her left and right. And I'm like, back in middle school, on the res, it's that kind of fight. And then right after that, she goes into essentially the Pledge of Allegiance, yeah. where everyone in unison, mm-hmm. very brainwashy. One of the elements of it, because the Academy... And let me just tell you how thrilled I would be about having my kid attend anything with Academy in the name, (laughs) even without all the other baggage. There are advertisements for the Academy in the early part of the film, and almost all of the kids you see are nice, clean, white kids. Yes, they are. But when you see within the Academy, almost everybody's brown, which isn't to indicate that's all that's there, but that's what you see within Wasi's class for the most mm-hmm. part, or within her cohort, the group that she's with. Yeah. Because the kid you were talking about earlier that has that conflict with his mother is actually one of the demonstration kids, like in the videos. She even points out, look how well he's doing, right? Pierre, who was supposed to be a pilot. What's he doing on the ground at an evacuation site? Right. It's just a reminder of the sort of deception involved in everything in that. You know, you talked about the situation where her mother is like, she's in a situation I can't take care of her. This is the best thing I can do right now. And she basically rats her out so that she gets picked up. And the fact that that is then used later as a part of her brainwashing is like your mom sold you out. Right. And even Pierre's mom, her mother deals with later, acts like she's almost proud of where he is and what he's doing and look how great he is and look how successful he is. Well, sure, it probably looks like that considering everybody else is basically living on rats in in a a burning city. Essentially a low-run reservation, Right. say. Right down to bioengineering a plague in the food that is airdropped by the drones. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if it was the food, but it was definitely a, here's a plague run through this place and people are dying and we don't care. Yeah. Here's your smallpox blankets, kids. Enjoy. You can argue clerical error on those blankets all you want. Somebody did that deliberately. Well, it's like, even if it was that way, there was very much the opinion of, oh, there's smallpox in this? Oh, well. Yeah. 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 The thing is... The allegory is barely allegorical. I mean, yes. it feels in some cases almost literal, and that's not a complaint. I'm not like, oh, you didn't... No. There's not any really pretending that this is about anything other than 
essentially colonialism. It's just a different version of it. Yeah, the last scenes, the visuals are so Standing Rock. Oh, yeah. yeah. They are so the Standing Rock protests. The final confrontation, you have a bunch of faceless dudes in armor, mm-hmm. right? And then you have the cell, as you've described them. And then here come the giant mosquitoes, you know, as the waves of drones come in. And it's like, oh, good grief. Because you have the cell, they're there with whatever crap you got around. You know, mm-hmm. bolt-action rifles, lever-action rifles. And they're facing off against these guys in armor and helmets with automatic weapons and all this technology. And it's like, boy, this has never been anything anybody's ever experienced <laughs> in the history of this nation. Never. Why on earth would Constantly, you ever think that? every time. There's... I'm reminded of a congressional conversation where a particular Republican congressman, whose name I forget, was asked when the last time military troops were deployed against American citizens, and he said sometime during the Civil War, completely obliterating Standing Rock. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know, man, what time is it? This film raised some points that Indian country... Indian country is a term that was originally defined in treaty papers and the Supreme Court case law within the United States. And it specifically refers to land, territories, and assets that are controlled by sovereign nations recognized by the United States. And there are inherent issues in that all the way around. Sure. But this film touches on citizenship and sovereignty and political identity. And it's done in a very subtle way. Everybody's been microchipped. Your identity is tied to this microchip. And you can't get out unless you're a citizen. And because they've been in the bush for six years, neither of them have citizenship. So you're sort of an outlaw in your own land. And that's very similar to what happened during the land grabs, during the American military versus the sovereign nations. And you see that with... Geronimo and the last stand of the Comanche here in Texas. You see that with the story of Zolly, which is retold every year in Mountainside Theater in Cherokee, North Carolina, unto these hills. You see that time and time again, it is written in the blood of my ancestors. Literally. And the arguments within Indian country about who is native and who has the right to speak for us and who has the right to represent us And these issues stem from this divide. The United States federal government has a lengthy process for federal recognition. And if you don't meet that process or you're not grandfathered in in some congressional act, like in the case of the Alabama Cushada, they were recognized in a congressional act that specifically eliminated their gaming rights. They are still fighting for gaming rights today in Texas. For those that cannot see this, Luane just raised his hands in a fuck-me gesture. And then certain states recognize certain lineages. And in the state of Texas, we recognize the Lipan Apache, who were Geronimo's people. Yes, let that sink in. One of the most infamous Indian chiefs of this country, his own descendants are not federally recognized. Yeah. There's a lot in this movie about who is and who isn't a real person. They use the term citizen, but that's basically what they're getting at. Yes. Who's human? Who has rights? Right. Because it's not even an issue of second-class citizenship. There is no secondary citizenship. You're either one of the accepted citizens or a real person, or you're not. You're the freeloader, right? And we see what happens to freeloaders. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the blankets don't work, as it were, or in this case, the food packets don't work, 
and taking your kids away doesn't work and doing all the other things doesn't work, well, we're going to we shoot you. We'll shoot you. So there's that too. And that's all there, every bit of it. And the thing for me watching this is all of these things are, in a sense, abstract elements to me, right? Like most of my family hasn't even existed in the United States until the 20th century. So, first of all, I don't have a long-standing history here in this nation. And second of all, as an old white dude, I don't have any cultural history that really carries any weight for me at this point, right? Like, I can tell you that this family is this and this family is this. It doesn't matter. With the exception of one grandmother who is of German descent and would occasionally speak in German, the closest thing I have to any of that is because she lived during the period between World War One and World War Two. You don't speak German because those are the bad guys, right? So that's the closest I've ever had to deal with anything like suppressing my culture. And in this case, it literally is just just talk like an American like everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not like she couldn't do any of the other elements. They just couldn't be too overt. Right. But there's no cosmetic difference, though. Like, nobody's going to look at her and go, oh, she's definitely a kraut. They're going to be like, Whatever. It's mm -hmm. just Mary. Who cares? Right? Whereas I witnessed a gas station attendant refuse to serve my grandmother because he doesn't tolerate Redskins in his store. I was six years old. Again, that's a what-the-fuck gesture that you guys can't see. Mm -hmm. I think, to me, that that's the weirdest thing about this, in some sense, is the overtness of that. Like, I think there's probably not a greater way to say that you don't matter then we don't even have to pretend that you actually matter. We can just tell you to your face we don't care. Yeah. And that is one thing about this film, too. That's very much a central theme of this film of look at how overt the you don't matter is. You know, it's not like an allegory of, like, this War of the Aliens is an allegory for Vietnam, you know, like in Star Trek. This is a... Very much, look, these are the Cree, as well as there's also an Aborigine in the mix as well. Right. And it's because Taika Waititi is a producer, which tinges on, hey, we were dicks all over the world, not just America. Whitey be dicks. But I know you were talking about this earlier, Kat, the moment that really got to you, despite the look at all the adversity that we have been going through that is still going on, but we're still here. Right. There were two quotes from this film that stood out to me, and the one you're referring to is, we are still here. Yep. And the power of that statement isn't in the statement itself, but in the fact that it's given in a speech by an elder in the Cree language with English subtitles. Uh -huh. That was... A spiritual moment for me. Sure. And in the song and the prayer and the fire and the joy of the storytelling and the humor, like, we are still here. Our culture is still here. We can still sit around the fire and tell stories and make jokes and laugh and live mm -hmm. with all of this around us and against us. And that is very much the reality for most Native people today. And that sounds like you're sliding into your final thoughts. Did you want to add anything more to it to kind well, of sum up how you're feeling? The other quote was, as long as we have one piece of land, they will always come for us. Which, if you look at the traditional ancestral home of the Comanche that the United States 
spent infinite resources to eradicate and claim. It's a railroad. There's nothing there. It's an open field with a little bit of train track. But you're still here. But we're still here. My existence is resistance. The fact that I am here means that they did not kill me, means that they did not kill my line, means that I am here. As for rating this film, I'm going to give it nine peace pipes. Different from dream catches, because you can leave them behind. Exactly. You can can make another one. I I lost it when that happened. I'm just like, oh my god, yes. It reminded me of Spaceballs. (laughs) Take only what you need to survive. It's like, it's my industrial strength hair dryer, and I can't live without it. (laughs) And what about you, Luane? The word allegory gets used a lot to describe this movie, right? Or elements of this movie, that this is an allegory of the native experience. And that's true, but there are things like District 9, and before that there was Alien Nation, and there are these things that are literal allegories for slavery and natives and and so forth. This is an allegorical storytelling, but it's about real people. Yes. And it actually shows real people, and that makes a huge difference. Because for me... These are still abstract concepts for the most part. Like, I can learn about all of these things. I've learned a hell of a lot of stuff talking to Cat before we did the recording. And I'm going to learn more, I'm sure. But there's still a certain distance that comes with an allegory. This is a real native mother and a real native child. I mean, obviously, they're not literally related. But within the story, this is a native woman. This is her native child. This is the environment they're in. And... I can also attach myself to this in a different way because it's real people and that could be my kid, right? The situation would be different because I'm an old white guy and my kids all look like white kids. But the point where she's like, the only way my kid is going to survive is if I have to give them into this society until I can get them back. And that is a thing I can latch onto and get a hold of a lot better than I can just oh, ha, these aliens have funny names, or these look like bugs, but they're really supposed to be, like, it's about apartheid and all that, whatever. This is about real people. This portrays things that have really happened to real people that, as we've learned just in this recording, are still, in fact, happening. And so it goes beyond allegory. And while it's not literal, it's not a documentary, it may as well be. And it carries a weight in that sense because of it. We are constantly reminded these are real people that others are treating as inhuman, savages. I mean, even another kid within that system refers to this kid as a savage. Like, there's even a pecking order within that. This is 4.5 out of 5 faceless cogs in the fascist machine. This film was really good at its message. Yeah, as you said, yes, this movie is technically allegory in that it is in the future and it's post-apocalyptic, but what it's saying is still very much prevalent. It is still very much in the social consciousness, particularly of the Native people. You know, everyone else is starting to get into that and starting to realize, hey, we probably should 
you know, be conscious of the bullshit that we've been doing for hundreds of years. And Native American History Month is November, which incidentally is also Thanksgiving. Everything you've ever learned about Thanksgiving in public school is a lie. It is a propaganda. (laughs) There's a reason the food is Victorian. Well, that was one thing I was going to say, too, is that this film, you know, it comes out two weeks before American Thanksgiving and two weeks after Canadian Thanksgiving. So it's like being conscious of we need to start learning the Native story outside of the white viewpoint. And I'm really glad that that is starting to happen. You know, you have people like Taika Waititi. You have people like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Granted, he's an actor, but still. And Disney doing things like Moana and when they got pushed back for Frozen for not consulting the Native people in that film, they were heavily consulted in Frozen 2. And of course, Reservation Dogs is doing really, really well right now. So it feels very much like Native stories, which they were here first, (laughs) you know, that they should be some of the people whose stories we should know the most, and yet we know them the least. So I'm really glad that films like this and stuff like that is starting to become more in the public eye so we can start seeing it and start including those voices in the conversation that have been silenced for so long. And for that, I very much applaud this film for doing. I will say that sometimes the message is at the expense of the plot. It does end on kind of a deus ex machina. Yes, she's nodding. She knows. Even she agrees. I was expecting more. Yeah. Yeah, It's just like, it's this very triumphant moment and then end. I'm like, Oh, okay. So we're not going to the promised land here. No. That's the next movie. There better be a next movie. But yeah, again, this is a very good movie in regards to its message, in regards to its story selling, and we need more of them. So go in there and feel and learn. This is a learning movie, and those are important. So I'm going to give it 8.5 out of 10 Haka dances because... I love them so much. I love the fact that you just, I am going to intimidate the shit out of you by like sticking out my tongue and bulging my eyes real wide. And it's awesome. I like dancing. What can I say? (laughs) I would like to leave with a list of resources for cultural outlets. If you're looking for more things like this. Absolutely. In terms of music, you definitely need to check out Lightfoot. He is a Native American rapper and actor. You may know him from Indian in the Cupboard. He has something like six rap albums. He owns his own label. There's also Snotty Nose Res Kids, who are also Northern Cree. If you're looking for what they're about, check out their music video on YouTube for Bougie Natives. (laughs) Yes. There's also, if you're looking for a magazine, there's Native Max Magazine based out of Denver, Colorado. The editor-in-chief and CEO is Kelly Holmes. She is Lakota and actually interned with her when I did my master's degree. Kat had a lot to say, both on and off mic, about what it means to be an Indigenous person. And I know Luane and I both learned a lot from her sharing her vast knowledge and life experiences. However, not all of it was able to fit in the format of the review. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't deserve to be heard. And considering this is Native American History Month, and considering the nature and meaning of the film we just reviewed, here's Kat again with a bit more of her unique insight. 
And then we have the whole issue of pretendianism, people who adopt indigenous identities without having any sort of citizenship, kinship, or community to back that up. When you touch on those issues, we're all familiar with what happened with Dolezal. Rachel Dolezal got outed as being ethnically white, had been living as ethnically black, and all of the uproar that went around that. I was asked once, at a job interview, actually, um, how Indian country would respond to something like that. And I had a response because it had been done before in Indian country by a woman of the name Andrea Smith, who is a professor at University of California, Riverside, today, still misrepresenting herself as indigenous. Regarding the residential schools. And there are some distinct differences in how these governments have responded to these historical acts. Canada has officially apologized. They have created a coalition to investigate the atrocities committed. And they have acknowledged that it was wrong. They flat out said, this happened. We're sorry. We're looking into it. Let us try to fix it. Are they going about it the right way? Probably not. There's been a lot of pushback. I hear a lot against the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau. On the American side, nothing. 